The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... I think what the green city is doing is trying to imagine a space before the city existed altogether. It's based on a kind of a fantasy of return, not just to the pre-city, but to pre-modernity in a certain kind of way. We explore the follies of future city ideas with an author who is asking us to rethink whether the green city movement holds a solution to all of our societal woes. Plus, we put officials in the spotlight as we hear from another author whose new book takes us to the desks of mayors across the globe and from an architect whose recent talk show takes learnings from an international collection of leaders. That's all ahead in the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The argument that big, dense, concrete cities are bad for us and that a green revolution is what all cities need to thrive is one that gets plenty of play with modern-day urbanists. But what is behind the notion that we need to flip the city on its head in the coming years? Is there a case to be made for actually celebrating our spaces as they are, warts and all? This is the topic explored in the new book, The City of Today is a Dying Thing, out next Thursday, the 18th of January, via Faber and Faber. I'm joined now by the book's author, Des Fitzgerald. Thank you for being here on The Urbanist. Now, you hold this perhaps slightly contrary view to a lot of urbanists about the green city movement. Can you tell us where you're coming from with this argument? Yeah, I mean, I think basically what's undergirding a lot of kind of green city initiatives it's a kind of idea that like there's something wrong with the city and that can go in like a few different directions, right? One can think of a certain set of affirmative transformations we could do to make cities better. But I think what the green city is doing is trying to imagine a space before the city existed altogether. It's based on a kind of a fantasy of return, not just to the pre-city, but to pre-modernity in a certain kind of way. And in that sense, there's something to me that's kind of reactionary that undergirds a lot of green city rhetoric and imagination. I think, for example, if we want to take seriously things like, say, let's say mental health in cities, which is a thing that's often put forward as a reason that you want more green space in cities, right? Because it's good for well-being and it's good for mental health. You know, I just can't get on board with the idea that if you want to seriously resolve the question of poor mental health in urban space, the idea that you're going to start with parks and trees and not, you know, much more mundane, much more boring things that we all know about, right? My big worry is that while we're talking about green space or like national park cities or those kinds of things, what we're not talking about are the big, obvious, dull social problems that are actually undergirding a lot of kind of what we see as problematic 
about living in a contemporary city. Let's take a step back because what's also fascinating about your book is, you know, that it's a run across history, certainly across recent history, of people who have looked at the city and thought about creating a garden city to build new suburbs where there's a kind of halfway house in between the density and the craziness of the downtown core of a New York, of a Chicago, of a London And something, as you say, that's a bit of a hybrid of that with nature. And you end up with these suburban cities, Welling Garden City here in the UK. I guess when I was reading the book, I think that's the bit that you have most disapproval of in a way, because it's neither one nor the other. You're kind of not saying, I want to go out in the countryside and be a farmer. But you're certainly not saying, I want to come into the city and enjoy its chaos and its serendipity and all the things that it throws at me. Indeed. I mean, I think the thing that's really striking to me is that we live in an age in which there are a lot of kind of future city visions, right? I mean, we've all seen like weird clips of Neom. There's a city called Telosa that is potentially being planned somewhere in the United States. And the thing that always strikes me is anytime you read through what's the kind of philosophical underpinnings of kind of new urban visions, it's always basically a rehash of mid-19th century social reform. As seen, you know, most prominently in urban planning, in the work of someone like Ebenezer Howard. So Ebenezer Howard is the founder of the Garden City movement. And as you say, it's exactly Howard's vision was basically, what if you could find a space that had all the attractions and affordances and good things about the city? So work, conviviality, all the good things we associate with urban space, but also had, you know, air, green space, more kind of pastoral ideas of what countryside living was like. So if you could put those two things together, that's really the fantasy of the Garden City. And it's just remarkable to me that no one ever thinks about, well, why is it that we never built any more well in Garden Cities? Why is it that we never built any more Letchworth Garden Cities? Why did that movement not take over? Is weirdly unthought through. We're just rehashing it again and again, even in like weirdly sci-fi forms like in Neom. I mean, Neom is really just a kind of sci-fi Ebenezer Howard. That's all it is. It's Ebenezer Howard with an airport. (laughs) And tell me, you went to lots of conferences, you met lots of people who are talking about the future of the city and why our current city is doomed or dying or failing. But did you find a model that you thought, this is the direction of travel that we should take? No, I didn't. And this is such a boring academics kind of answer, but here it is anyway. It's because it's a bad question. Not that your question is bad, but the question that undergirds these kind of conferences, which is, yeah, what would the future of the city look like? What's the ideal future of the city? It's just such a bad place to start from. And it always starts at really bad models, like places like Copenhagen, which I mentioned in the book, which is like astonishing to me that you would take Copenhagen as a kind of model of what a good city looks like. I mean, the thing that always strikes me when I go to these kind of conferences is that we're never talking about the kind of urban spaces that people actually live in, right? We're always talking about Copenhagen and London and Shanghai, and not that people live in those places, obviously. But if you add up all the people who live in urban areas around the globe, they overwhelmingly live in, you know, I can say this as a person who lives in one, like crap cities, right? They live in places like Cork or Swansea, or Nottingham, or Aulu, or Lyon, you know, second tier, not particularly well-functioning cities. So rather than kind of thinking of what is the future of the city, which is invariably a question about like, what are we going to do in the square mile in London, right? Or what are we going to do in Hackney? I'd much rather think about what can we learn from the way that life is lived well in fairly crap urban spaces today? And that's just such an uninteresting question, I think, from the point of view of funders or planners or the kind of people who run these kind of events. You're arguing for an appreciation of the city we have today. And you know, if you live in, as you say, a crap city, make the most of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much make the most of it, but like give up on this fantasy of utopia. You know, I do think like urban utopia is always terrible. I think I say this somewhere in the book that utopia is always bad news for someone. 
And this fantasy of transformation, I think, invariably takes us to bad, often violent places, actually. And it's not so much just to kind of be complacent and just live with the kind of bad stuff we have, but it's just, I worry that like too much of contemporary urban discourse is driven by people who just don't like cities, right? That what is driving them is not a kind of a vision of the future city. It's a vision of an anti-city. So I'd much rather listen to people who are trying to make good life in semi-functioning urban spaces and who are committing to those spaces than people who basically want us all to, you know, go back to the Garden of Eden. First of all, actually, we should just say for our Danish listeners, perhaps you can explain why Copenhagen is such a bee in your bonnet. I lived in Denmark for a year, so I feel somehow validated or allowed to be rude about Denmark. I lived in Aarhus, which is, uh, of course, the cork of Denmark. It's the second city way up in the north of Jutland. And of course, if you're in Aarhus, you're very much allowed to be rude about Copenhagen. I mean, it's not so much, and Copenhagen is perfectly fine, but it, to me, it just represents such a kind of dull aestheticization of what a good city looks like. You know, that kind of bland Nordic nothingness where nothing bad happens and no one's ever hurt and there's pretty houses on the harbour. It's just so vacuous, I think, in terms of thinking seriously about what good urban space looks like. You know, I think when people are talking about Copenhagen, like it's a way of not talking about the city, right? It's a way of kind of talking about some kind of odd projection we all have about Nordicness. So it's nothing against Copenhagen itself. I'm sure it's a lovely place. It's just what it stands in for in these kind of spaces. What do you want people to take away from this book? I must say the book is funny. You're rude about quite a lot of places. It turns out you don't like Paris either. But tell me, what do you want people to do when they read this book? Because there are lots of people who are going to read this book and it trips you up a few times. It makes you think differently about the debates and, and about the consensus. And I think in any world, when you have so much consensus, that's a problem. But what do you want people to take away from your book? You know, what I'd really like people to do is to think a little bit differently about what they're talking about when they talk about urban nature. I think so many of the kind of problems in this area, so many of the ways we get tripped up is we have this very loose, very romantic and very poorly thought through idea of something called nature. And we usually mean, you know, vegetation or trees or like otters or whatever it is. But the idea that the city is an unnatural place, that it's artificial, that it's a place we're not meant to be in because of whatever it is, evolution or genetic inheritance, I would really like people to think a lot more critically around that. I think one of the most important messages in the book for me is that there's nothing unnatural about the modernist public housing schemes of the mid 20th century, right? Either in terms of like materials or in terms of mode of life. And I think the idea that we have a natural mode of living and that if only we find it, life would be good again. I do think that this is a potentially deeply reactionary affect and one that will only lead us to bad places. My thanks there to Des Fitzgerald. And The City of Today is a Dying Thing is out on the 18th of January, published by Faber and Faber. Tale of Two Cities is an eight-episode talk show series recently released by the architect Dikshu Kukreya. The series invites public officials from around the world to share insights on how cities can tackle the biggest problems of today and what techniques they can learn from each other too. Dikshu joined Monocle's Carlotta Rabello in studio to explore the recent discussions he's been having and how his history working in South Asia brings a new perspective to the conversations. Carlotta began by asking Dikshu about the tale of two cities and how the show came about. 
Tale of Two Cities was really about scratching the surface and discovering what are the similarities between cities across the world, between the aspirations and the challenges that citizens living in these places day in and day out have commonalities, those aspirations which they share, the challenges which they face, and what and where can we learn from each other. One thing that we've discussed often here in this show as well is how having the right person in a particular job really can make a difference for cities, be this an active and engaged local mayor to a president of a country or a prime minister, that if they are engaged in what's happening in city life, it really can be a game changer for the residents and citizens of that area, country or city. I wanted to ask you if with the people you met throughout making this program, if you found that is the common denominator, having that passion for creating cities and places that we call home that are better for everyone. So, you know, I think today, particularly in democratically elected spaces, cities or or countries as it would be, one sees that the leaders, the global leaders are now beginning to realize that they need to function as CEOs in many ways in the sense that they are responsible, they are answerable to their electorate, to the citizens. And they are also slowly but surely beginning to realize that climate change and other aspects of the 20th century misconceptions of urban planning in a sense, the detrimental effect it has had on cities, how it needs a course correction on an emergency basis. I think that's something the global leaders are really realizing and also what I feel is that somewhere citizen advocacy in whichever parts of the world I see that being more active is where I think the changes for the better seem to happen as well. So I think one of the lessons learned from that point of view is that, you know, we citizens have a voice and we We need to understand that if there are problems in our cities, we need to get up and bring them to call to attention to the right people. Because just sitting back there and having armchair conversations about how everything is going wrong is not going to fix it. So I think citizen advocacy is a key here if we want to really improve our cities. I'm curious to hear from you where you sit in the world, if the, I guess, South Asian context that you bring into your projects, these discussions, kind of help you see these issues in a different light. You know, India is a country that has seen both sides of what we're just talking about, you know, the benefits of rapid, positive urbanization, but also the challenges that come attached to it. So I'm curious how that has informed your work throughout the years as well. Carlota, that's a great question. And yes, we in India right now, as a design professional, as an architect and urban planner and a strong environmentalist, happen to be in that period of time, which is literally the crossroads of civilization. And I I don't mean to sound overly dramatic with it, but it truly happens to be a time, a period where India is pacing at a speed we've never seen before in transformation of our urban environments, in the progress, in the growth of the economy, one of the fastest growing economies in the world, already marching ahead to become the fifth largest economy in the world. You know, we were far behind there just a decade ago, and apparently in the next few years, in the next seven to eight years, we'll be the third largest economy in the world. So it's a very rapidly changing face of the earth when you consider that one out of every six to seven people on this planet happen to be Indians with a population of 1.4 billion. These are staggering figures. And for me to be there leading a large multidisciplinary 
Sanctuary Design Practice, which is trying to transform the urban India. It's a huge responsibility sometimes, I feel. It's a country with certain contradictions in a way. First of all, it's great that the country is democratic and a very healthy, vibrant democracy it is. I'm very proud as an Indian to share that with you. The second is the transformation and the pace of it, which I'm talking. But the third is, are we really turning our back towards the environment? Of course, there are a lot of initiatives our governments are taking in India, the state governments and the federal government in terms of being environmentally responsible. But I think this responsibility rests with each and every Indian. So whether it's the communities, whether it's the citizens, whether it's the, you know, the man on the street, we all need to understand that. Because look, the other face of India, which I shudder to share with you, is that today I got a WhatsApp message where Delhi, our capital, is yet again the most polluted city in the world. And a study out of Chicago says that we are being robbed out of almost 12 years of our life because of the bad air that we have. I mean, not just bad is an understatement there. So these are challenges which also we need to wake up to and wake up fast because otherwise, what is this modern transformation or growth in economy if inside we are choking every citizen that's there in the city? And in that particular example of Delhi, I was reading as well how as a temporary fix, there will be a ban on vehicles in the city. But as we were saying, that is a temporary fix. It won't address the root causes of the issue. And for that, it needs to be implemented in this urban vision for how the city can be transformed in order for some quality of life to be given back to residents. No, absolutely. And, you know, I must say that there are huge and great initiatives our government is taking. And we understand as citizens the challenge also for the government when you have this sort of challenges in the global south, in particularly large metropolises like Delhi, which have been the hubs of urban migration. You have large number of people in these cities. They are the largest cities on the planet. So to change them overnight is not easy. We understand that. But having said that, I think the conviction needs to stay there and action needs to happen really fast because, yes, these are things that you can't wait and expect one whole generation to get wiped out or suffer from catastrophic illnesses just because, you know, these changes have to happen slow. So as much as the challenge is for India to change fast, I think the greater challenge is to make sure that we change healthy and responsibly. I want to stay on this topic that it has touched upon everything we've discussed so far, which is creating better cities and a more livable future. And a lot of this is summarized in this compendium that you've launched with Professor Gita Mehta as well, this livable cities for the future. Now, this was part of India's G20 presidency and rethinking our urban environments. Tell me a bit more about what were some of the key findings that you illustrate there and what are some of the things that you've both highlighted that governments and businesses need to take seriously when talking about the built environment and how to make better cities in the future. So, yes, I think India took a great initiative, particularly under the guidance of our Honorable Prime Minister, that the G20 presidency that India just hosted should really be looking at various aspects for the common man, as we say there, for the common citizen. It's not just confined to, you know, conclaves happening between the powerful global leaders, but really it should affect the man on the street. So from that point of view, the initiative that I was asked to head by our government was looking at livable cities for the future. And through my 
wonderful colleague that I worked with, Professor Geeta Mehta from Columbia University. We reached out to the, you know, some of the best minds across the world and looked at different aspects of what makes a city livable. So this was not confined just to the physical dimensions of a city or physical aspects of a city, but it had to do with true aspects of livability. So whether it has to do with the happiness quotient for each and every city dweller, or it has to do with the aspects of gender sensitivity or universal accessibility. I mean, how can we in the 21st century continue to build a physical environment where we completely sometimes ignore people who are physically having certain kind of disabilities or challenges? How can you not imagine what their life can be if you have not created a conducive environment? And similarly for the children, similarly for the senior citizens, similarly for the women. So from all these aspects is what we looked at, how our cities need to become places which are more livable in the true sense of the word and not just many times that urban planners sitting in ivory towers have come together and discussed whether it is about you know sustainable commute or heights and marshes and green spaces in buildings. I think it is far wider, this whole aspect of livability of a city. And I'm glad that bringing together those kind of diverse minds from diverse parts of the world, we have been able to address this in this compendium of essays. Dikshu Kukreya there, in conversation with Carlotta Rebello. Sticking with the theme of conversations with city officials, mayors have also proved an enduring subject of fascination for Anthony Flint. Flint is the author of Mayor's Desk, Local Leaders Solving Global Problems, recently published by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, a global think tank where Flint is a senior fellow. Monocle's Gregory Scruggs recently sat down with Flint to discuss his experience putting mayors in the hot seat. Let's listen in. The Mayor's Desk sees you compiling interviews with 20 different mayors from both the United States and around the world. You've been chasing mayors for many years now. What makes the mayor such a compelling interview subject for you? Well, I think cities are where the action is. And these leaders, many of whom are, you know, they're really rising stars in politics, are dealing with all of these global challenges, but on the ground at the local level. And there's something about that that we just find really compelling. And it's where a lot of ideas get generated. They're all innovating in their own ways. They're thinking creatively. And there was a lot to talk about, about the issues that we think are important that have to do with land use and zoning and transportation and climate action and affordable housing. All of these leaders are confronting those things one way or the other. And the subtitle of the book, of course, is Local Leaders Solving Global Problems. Can you give me an example, and especially how cities are learning from each other? Because I think that cities all over the world share so many of the same challenges. Well, I'll think of two. One in the U.S. is the mayor of Cincinnati, Aftab Puravel, who is the first Asian-American mayor of that city. And interesting stuff going on in Cincinnati. It's becoming a bit of a climate haven. They're getting some in-migration. They're affordable right now, but Mayor Puravel is worried about the communities that are there now and whether displacement is inevitable or not. So he participated in a buyout, essentially, of institutional investors. There were about less than 200 properties 
uh, in this one neighborhood of Cincinnati owned by an institutional investor in the city basically outbid other institutional investors to acquire those properties and make them available for fixer-uppers and first-time homebuyer opportunities. So something like that just really captures how these leaders are on the front lines and they're having to take these dramatic actions to try to manage some newfound popularity and manage every part of a revitalizing city. So I had a lot of respect for that. That's one example. The other was Yvonne Aki Sawyer, mayor of Freetown, Sierra Leone. And she's got all kinds of challenges. But with regard to climate, what I thought was really cool about what she did was in partnership actually with the Arsht Rockefeller Foundation, was looking at heat and extreme heat as an immediate impact of climate change that needed to be dealt with. And, you know, it was a simple thing. They arranged for these giant covers over the open-air markets, and all of these women would come to the market, and they'd just be sitting there kind of baking in the heat. So they developed beautiful, well-designed shades for this marketplace. Now, it sounds really simple, but sometimes I think when it comes to climate change and resilience, those simple interventions make a huge difference in the quality of life of the residents. So I think in both instances, you could say that those are replicable ideas, right? You know, they can read this book and learn about those ideas. But I think there are networks where these mayors are exchanging those kinds of ideas outbid institutional investors in Cincinnati and do this simple but hugely meaningful intervention in Freetown, Sierra Leone. Mayors are oftentimes politicians on the rise. You know, they might go on to serve at higher national office. And so they have an incentive to put their best foot forward when they speak to somebody like you who's going to publish an interview. How do you get them to put campaign mode aside and instead be a little more candid, not just about their successes, but also about the challenges, perhaps even sometimes when they've been led astray and, and learned from their mistakes? Well, I guess, looking back at it, we were a little bit sneaky, right? You know, we ask them about zoning and land use, and, you know, they dive right in. And many of these leaders, they're tactical, you might call them urban mechanics, pretty sort of matter of fact about a lot of things. Kate Gallego in Phoenix, Meryl Weinberger in Burlington, Vermont, trying to get to net zero through some incredibly effective strategies, including the city owning its own electric utility that is all green. So when these folks talk about stuff like that, you know, it just comes out and it seemed to reflect them getting things done in a very practical and effective way. And I was impressed by that. So it was kind of disarming in a way, I guess, maybe to ask about some of these sustainability and housing and transportation questions. It gets to nuts and bolts and not so much politicking or campaigning in the end. Now, mayors are quick to flock to a ribbon cutting, ways of getting media attention through something that's visible, tangible, maybe even flashy. But Anthony, you have a knack for uncovering certain innovations that might fly under the radar but have an outsized importance. Is there a mayor that comes to mind from that side of the ledger? Yes, certainly. Randall Woodfin in Birmingham, Alabama, 
mayor of a legacy city dealing with all kinds of issues related to poverty and and disinvestment. It's not a huge sexy thing, but one of the first things he did was establish a new office for the sole purpose of managing all the federal funding that was going to come his way and indeed is coming his way through the Inflation Reduction Act or other federal stimulus and other programs. And, you know, again, it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but it is kind of a tactical move that is so smart and will really pay dividends. Historically, there have been some cases where cities have left federal funding on the table because they just didn't have the administrative capacity to manage it. Mayors are very busy people, and you've tracked them down oftentimes in some odd places or at least in motion as they're heading to important engagements. Who have you caught a little bit off the cuff, and how did that kind of a mayor's desk interview work out? Well, the mayor of Athens, I caught up with almost with the microphone in my hand when he came to visit Harvard. He did a program at the Kennedy School. But really, the most memorable interview may have been Claudia Lopez, the mayor of Bogota, Colombia. I interviewed her as she was in a car driving to the airport to go to Glasgow for COP26. And, you know, she must have had a lot of things going on in her mind, but she was incredibly organized in all the stuff she talked about. And there were, there were some really big issues. The context of women in a city like Bogota and improving facilities, whether it's childcare, it's just kind of recognizing all the work that women actually do in cities. Issues of informal settlement and public safety. She had a command about all of these issues that was really impressive. And here she was, you know, in the back seat of, of the car on the way to the airport. That's why they pay them the big money, I guess. But uh, it was just really kind of reassuring in a way that a leader like that shows so much poise and, and be so self-assured, I guess. You've interviewed 20 mayors just for this book alone and surely others over the course of your career. If an aspiring mayoral candidate were to come to you for one piece of advice, what would you give them? I guess to be open to policy ideas, to not get cornered or straight-jacketed into old thinking. It's such a cliche to say out of the box, but to be open to that, open to innovation, learn from others. You know, we talked about this earlier, steal each other's ideas and be humble and straightforward and do some of these tactical things that can make a big difference, all the while articulating your vision for the city Someone, by the way, who was really good at that was, I thought, Kate Gallego, who was the mayor of Phoenix. And, you know, there's all kinds of political cross currents in a place like Phoenix, Arizona, and she managed it very well and sort of made the case, for example, about how maybe we shouldn't be watering our lawns quite so much out there, or made the case for a public transit extension, very sort of level-headed and practical approach to these challenges. Anthony Flint in conversation with Gregory Scruggs. And Mayor's Desk, Local Leaders, Solving Global Problems, is out now via the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, get new episodes direct to you every single week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlos Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week... 
Here's Jungle with Talk About It. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Let's talk.